Minister Ken Wyatt, thank you very much for talking to us here at Karma. It's good to be with you again. I haven't spoken to you for a while. I was wondering if we could start off by talking about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. The Beagle Bay community in the Kimberley say they've had success at fully vaccinating 90% of their community against COVID-19. They say it's due to individual community engagement. And since I last spoke to you, there have been some improvements uh, across some remote communities, but there still are rates for areas where there are high Indigenous populations still lagging behind. Um, I was wondering if we could start off about what conversations the federal government are undertaking with Aboriginal controlled health services to engage at a community level. Well, there's two levels um, that are recurring. One is where Nacho, who represents all of the Aboriginal community controlled health organisation, sits on a a task force or an advisory body to Minister Hunt and to the Department of Health. So they strategically identify work and areas of concern and then have implemented a program of work. The other is through Pat Turner and I meeting regularly, uh, and both of us are on other workforce committees that are looking at COVID-19 and how we tackle the hesitancy in our communities. Because what worries both Pat and I is the number of people who have not vaccinated. At 8am today, we, we had a figure that 63% of Indigenous Australians, 16 and over, have had one dose. And about 50% have had their second dose. But I know there are a lot of communities in the top end where those figures don't match that. And the problem is, when the virus does come, they will be extremely vulnerable. And we're seeing from the deaths that have occurred, it is amongst people who are not vaccinated. The challenge. If I can get you, uh, the federal government data that I looked at earlier this week uh, for particular regions showed that the Barclay region has only just over 30% of their population fully vaccinated. I was wondering to give get your thoughts on proposals from jurisdictions, including like the Gunner government here in the NT, uh, about what they put forward as a roadmap for freer movement between states in upcoming weeks. And when we see rates like 30% fully vaxxed in the Barclay, would you say that you're concerned about the protection of remote communities once freer movement is seen among states? Look, I'm absolutely concerned because... Once states reach 80% of their total population, and that includes non-Indigenous and Indigenous, then they will open their borders because that is the national plan that all premiers and chief ministers have agreed to. Our people won't better lock down their communities and keep the virus out. It worked the first time, but the Delta strain is more problematic. And we have seen in New South Wales where it broke out in Western Sydney and there were individuals who came from some of the river towns who returned back to their communities and that's how it spread. And we will have people living in Darwin that will, if COVID becomes a problem, will head back home. And by heading home, they'll think it's safe, but they might be the carrier. Uh, As I once said before, an elder talked about, don't create a COVID songline to our communities. And the Commonwealth won't be using the Biosecurity Act this time uh, because the majority of the state or territory's population is vaccinated. So our people have got to think about when you choose not to, 
don't give your body the warriors that kill off and stop the COVID-19 Delta virus from having an impact on your lungs, your kidneys, and other parts of your body. And some people don't recover. And I grew up in the bush, and I know what it's like to get from a country town to a regional hospital. It's not easy. And if your breathing is not good, then that impacts on uh, the rest of your body, including your heart. I don't want to see anybody say no to the vaccine and then later on when they're infected saying, I wish they had the needle. We, we, we're good at being immunised. We lead every other Australian community behind when it comes to vaccination rates for all of our other vaccinations we've had over our childhood and adulthood. And there is a figure that we're about one and a half percentage points above Australia. So we're good at uh, making sure that we protect our bodies. But on this one, we're hesitant. It's, it's not a new medication. Companies for a long time have been working on vaccines for viruses and COVID-19 is a virus. And by having the immunisation, it means that that creates the warriors in your body to prevent the virus hurting and damaging you. Minister Wyatt, I note that there's been a major campaign launched to encourage First Nations people around the country to get vaccinated, and it features a lot of high-profile First Nations people in this country. But for the remote communities where people can possibly have low English skills, may speak it as a third, fourth or fifth language, the campaign may possibly be a little lost on them. I mean, Labor Senator Malandiri McCarthy has uh, criticised the slowness of action in getting messages that is in language into communities regarding the vaccine. What efforts have there been to ensure correct information is given to those communities, particularly in language that's, I suppose, outside of campaigns that are have been launched uh, in recent days? Now, we've been getting it out in language from probably April, May. And it was originally in about 12 languages. It's now 18 because what we heard from community leaders was tell us in language, then we understand it better. Mm. Tell us the story in language because we'll understand why it's important. And having 18 languages gives strong coverage. And that's why First Nations Radio, Radio Networks is the way we get the message out because a lot of our people listen to our stations before they listen to the ABC although they do listen to the ABC, and that's why these messages are important. Earlier this month, month our Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, announced a vaccine mandate for workers in a broad range of settings. Um, he says it's necessary to protect vulnerable groups, but some also argue it could come at a cost with job losses. And your colleague in the coalition, Senator Sam McMahon, says it was an overreach. I was wondering where you stood on this measure, whether how much you think a decision like this from our Chief Minister can protect vulnerable groups. Is it an overreach? No, because what the Chief Minister is doing is on the advice of his Chief Health Officer and on the advice of his Minister for Health, he would have given it a lot of thought and knows that frontline workers if they are infected, may see a number of people during the course of the day and then pass it on. If we think about just the ordinary flu, 
and you have a bad flu season, you see people coughing and spluttering and sort of spreading the bacteria, we end up with a whole lot of people coming down with the flu. And we see it in the workplace. The Minister Gunner would be looking at what's the best way of protecting people. And so he's made a decision that frontline workers should be vaccinated. And I know there are people who will object to that. But sometimes that's hard for us to do in terms of a mandatory approach. Then we either have to comply with it or leave that workforce and look for somewhere where you're not a frontline worker. But it's fundamentally, as I've seen in Western Australia, the Premier there said, we have to protect our communities. And people argue about their rights, and some will say, I have the right not to have it, and others will say, but I work in the same workplace as you, and I have the right to be protected from the virus, and I don't want you giving it to me. So there's a lot of those debates that'll happen, but he's making it for the greater good of everybody within that community. So... And let me say that mm. we've taken a lead. Outback stores, and I was talk, talking to Sue Gordon, who is the chair of Outback stores, said every director of Outback stores have had their vaccination, and it wasn't mandatory. They decided they would do it because they're interacting with our communities, and then all of the employees have had both their vaccines. And it hasn't affected them. All our stores are still open, and our people who work in there are now protected from the virus, but they're protecting, in a sense, as an act of love, people in their community. And Pastor Ray Minikin has asked people to have the vaccination. He said, based on the book of Ephesians, he said there is a verse in there that talks about an act of love. And he said, my act of love is to have the vaccine so I protect my sister, my brother, my mum, my dad and my community. And so that's what we're doing when we vaccinate. We're protecting other people as well as ourselves. And it's important we think that way. Let's move on to other topics. Uh, This month is Indigenous Business Month and you launched a new Indigenous Business Hub to be based in Darwin. That was launched, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Can you explain what the hub's aims are? Well, what we've done is we've already established three hubs. I was at the Weira Hub in Perth just recently and it was a hive of activity. People, people were buzzing around all over the place in the building because these were Indigenous people who wanted to start businesses. And in the Weira Hub, they have mentors and business advisors who give them advice as to how they can start their business, what they have an obligation to do in terms of paying tax, superannuation. But they're also helping them find the best way Uh, that they can set themselves up independently of the hub and thrive as a business, but they continue to intervene. And when I say intervene, they they go and help them. Or you can come into the hub and say, hey, it's around tax time now. I'm not sure how to do my uh, lodgement of uh, papers for the BAS, which is a tax all companies pay. And so they just give them advice as to how to do that, what they need to provide the tax office. And it keeps the company growing. Plus, they challenge them and say, this is your first year you've done well. What's your aim for next year? So I might have started off saying, I want to earn a $50,000 profit, and I make it. And they'll say to me, 
so what's your strategy to increase your $50,000 profit? And they give me some ideas as to how I can improve my business. Uh, so it's absolutely important. You know, the other interesting thing is a lot of the small pop-up businesses are our women. And I went to an IBA breakfast two years ago, and I was just blown away by the number of Aboriginals and two Torres Strait Islander women who had their own businesses. They didn't ask for any government grant. They just started. I was just amazed at their perseverance, but they used a model like a hub to grow their business and be successful. And that's what these hubs do. They, they provide mentoring. They provide advice. They showcase uh, examples of Aboriginal businesses that are succeeding. They also have non-Indigenous businesses that also provide advice. So they build on what works, how does it work, and how can you make your company a deadly one? You also spoke at the uh, 10th Northern Territory Aboriginal Economic Development Forum via video link, and the forum was being held here in Alice Springs. Um, in your speech, you, you talked about initiatives that would be contributions to closing the gap, and you, you talked about um, initiatives uh, working on the broader business community and many many Indigenous businesses. I was wondering if you could maybe outline a little bit more about this roadmap for Indigenous skills and jobs, uh, as well as wealth creation, and talk about the uh, labour supply that may be being needed within uh, regional and particularly remote communities. Could you maybe also outline what industries are being looked at? Actually, there are a number of industries. Uh, I'm looking at Industries such as agriculture, uh, horticulture, aquaculture, fisheries, forests, um, because I've got to think about the whole region of Australia, but also defence industries, uh, manufacturing, education and educational and training services, health, which includes uh, mainstream health, NDIS uh, and aged care is just some of them. So we had 14 industry roundtables to look at how do we encourage and attract Aboriginal people into jobs in the industry? But more importantly, what businesses can they set up that would be part of the supply chain to those set of industries? So, for example, if it's a mining company, then you might be a contractor that repairs fences or you might be another contractor that provides uh, waste disposal. In other words, you pick up all the rubbish from the mining company's uh, campsite and you dispose of it. And one uh, organisation collects all the empty cool drink bottles and empty bottles and gets the 10 cents back on them. So they're making money that way. The roadmap talks about skills development. So we, we're looking at what skills are needed not only for today's jobs, but the emerging jobs in technology. And given uh, we're going to have a top-end space station, I want to see some Aboriginal people in there, particularly those who've graduated through universities applying for and having the skills to work in the space industry. Through to the remote engagement program that I'm trialling in Foresight, Fireside, sorry, where I want the community mm. to design the work teams that will operate. And I want the community to own it, not for it to be just the CDP. 
So I'm looking at every possible opportunity. We're short of teachers, we're short of nurses, we're short of doctors. There are jobs within agriculture that we used to have backpackers fill. So I heard this morning, there are 93,000 jobs now that people can walk into if they've got the skills. So we just don't have them. And I think we're an underutilised and undertapped resource. And then I heard yesterday from the Governor-General about Kapani in the top end of Queensland. And one of the things they're doing now is they're driving around picking up all the old car wrecks and turning it, crushing them, and making a financial return on selling the, the metal and other parts of those crushed cars that is bringing in a good income for them to train more people. So they're training them. You mentioned the CDP in your answer there, and I was wondering if there's been any updates in terms of the plans that you have uh, for replacing that program. Uh, well, you, you announced earlier this year that the program was to be replaced with something else that's more focused on Aboriginal community ownership. Has anything developed in that space? We are. We've identified the five locations and I hope to visit the Nutanjara community where, or the Nutanjara lands where mm. one of them will be going. And I want to sit down with the elders and the traditional owners and the community and say what's possible. What are the types of jobs that can be created where you are part of it? For example, mm. art galleries. Every time I've gone into art galleries, there are people in there but I want to see Indigenous people in some of the management. I want to see them acquire the skills of running an art gallery, uh, dispatching artworks that are bought by tourists, part of the bookkeeping, and not just be the artists only. And then maintenance teams that will fix the houses in the community will do the painting, will do the plumbing. And, and when I say plumbing, it's the simple things like changing a washer on a dripping tap. Um, so plumbers, mates. So there's plenty of opportunity to develop it in conjunction with our people. Uh, but the, there was a discussion paper that we sent out. But I want to trial these five sites to see what are the variations I have to think about. But where there are mining companies nearby, then I want the community to think about what are the types of jobs that we can negotiate with that mining company to create the employment, to create people spending hard-earned money back in their community and having choices, not just the CDP program, where if you don't turn up, then uh, you have a problem. I want to see people become involved because the community owns the way it's designed and for people to make a contribution. So we will continue to work with those five, but I want people to have a look at the discussion paper and to let the National Indigenous Australian Agency know what their thoughts are if you are a CDP community because the rest of us will be on job allowance programs that are mainstream programs. Now, where we have CDP, we've got a unique opportunity of helping develop some skills. And so when I work in that art gallery, I'll be able to list down the things that I now have skills in and have what I hope becomes like a skills statement that I have developed because I worked in that art gallery as part of a team of people that made a contribution to supporting our artists, mm. but also to helping with the sales, the sending off and the maintenance of that centre. So 
it's a great opportunity. Another topic that I wanted to discuss with you was the launch of the National Child Abuse Prevention Strategy uh, from the federal government yesterday. Um, as part of this plan, just under $4 million will be set aside for the National Indigenous Australians Agency to work with First Nations experts to design and trial a resource to support frontline health workers. Could you maybe flesh out a little bit more about how this resource will work? Well, it's $10 million in total. We are looking at uh, place-based solutions and delivery of uh, programs and services. The other is about developing uh, appropriate cultural understandings for organisations that are predominantly non-Indigenous. So when an Indigenous person comes in and is referred to them because that's the only service available, then they need to understand the cultural elements that go with our culture, our kinship groups and the networks uh, that exist around us where our community is, etc. Now, we, we have known for a long time there is child abuse in communities. We've seen some fairly high-profile cases across this nation at different times. Many of them and in the Central that, Australian region. Uh, and other places as well. Yes. It's not just Central Australia. It's, but there's also many that aren't in the news, but they are part of the health system. And so what's important is that we've established a significant working group with Fiona Cornforth, Cornforth sorry, who is uh, from the Healing Foundation and Catherine Niddle, who's the CEO of SNAKE. Now, they're two very strong Aboriginal organisations who've played a major role in protecting and supporting families. So they, they have a good sense of what it is that systems need to know and how mainstream systems need to address what is occurring to the abuse of a child. I just find it despicable, uh, the abuse of a child, because their lives are so innocent, they should be fun-loving and having every opportunity to grow up to be a strong young adult uh, and enjoy their teenage years and then later on adulthood uh, that I have seen. And I was a classroom teacher. I had seen the effects of sexual abuse on a child. Um, and let me say the person who does it doesn't see it, but others see it when a child becomes affected by what has happened to them. We take away their innocence. I, I would think that, that this is like a matter of urgencies, particularly in remote communities. And I'd like to get your idea about how long you think there can be a turnaround uh, to be able to reduce things like racism and discrimination and improving cultural safety um, so that First Nations people and survivors of sexual, who are survivors of sexual abuse can seek support. Are, are you hopeful that something like this can be achieved in, say, I don't know, a decade, two decades, or do you think it's a much more smaller step to a larger plan? No, it's a step of immediacy. Mm. In other words, we're doing it now. Uh, we do have programs that the National Indigenous Australian Agency um, provides funding for, and there are a number of those. There are mainstream programs that fund Aboriginal organisations. What we have to do, though, is heighten the awareness that this behaviour of sexual abuse is not acceptable. 
and by developing an understanding of the mainstream services and frontline workers and from the work that both SNAKE and the Healing Foundation have done, they know what the long-term impacts are. I sat with a man one day who was just having a yarn to me in my electorate. And then he asked my staff member who was taking notes to leave. He was a man who was in his 50s. And he said, I just want to talk to you. And then he burst into tears. And he told me his story of sexual abuse that happened to him as a child. And he said, nobody protected me. Nobody stopped the person abusing me. And he said, I now carry the pain of that and I don't share it with anybody. And I think that's an important element that we have to think about the long-term damage it does to an individual.